The really exciting thing about deep decarbonization and getting to a point where we've decarbonized our whole energy system in addition to all of the other industrial systems that we see contributing to climate change is really fundamentally how much we're remaking all of these systems. It's simultaneously exciting and actually incredibly scary, but I think one of the things that's so important about it and why it's so important that we really think about this thoughtfully and with a real attitude about looking for justice and looking for opportunities to do sustainability correctly that we really do need to completely overhaul the infrastructures that we have really seriously rely on for things like energy and mobility and all of these kinds of things that enhance our lives. The opportunity, therefore, kind of lies in this open space where we can think about what a deep vision might be for what we want the world to look like as we are undergoing these massive, massive changes. The terror at some level is really that that means we have to do that all and we have to do it while we're dealing with climate change really accelerating. We have to deal with it while we're observing the effects of really not having invested in our infrastructure for a long time. And as a civil engineer, that is something that scares me in particular. But we have this enormous opportunity that even if we get it mostly right, I think will be really transformative for the way that we create opportunities and really create safety for ourselves. As such, I think when we think about deep decarbonization and when we think about energy transformation in particular, really making sure that we understand what it is that we're trying to achieve. Yes, to some extent, that's getting the carbon out of the system, but it's also making sure that people are safe and have access to the things that we need and are prepared to deal with climate, but also that we're really emphasizing human thriving and making sure that people have everything that it takes to live good lives is really going to be an incredible, incredible opportunity, but it's again, one that we don't necessarily definitely have to succeed at. So I think part of this conversation that I'm really excited about is just what it means to plan that, what it means to know what we're trying to get to, and where we really have opportunities to make enormous, enormous differences, not only for our own lives, but for the lives of people for many, many generations hence. We started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on I'm Paul Dockery, the host of Public Power Underground and Senior Manager of Energy Resource Strategy and Planning for Seattle City Light. And I'm Almaz Nagesh, the co-host of Public Power Underground and Power Planner for Tacoma Power. Joining Almaz and I as this week's celebrity guest stars are doctors and professors Emily Grubert and Frank Incropera. Dr. Emily Grubert is an associate professor of sustainable energy policy in the Keough School of Global Affairs and the university at the University of Notre Dame. She is a civil engineer and environmental sociologist who studies how we can make better decisions about large infrastructure systems, particularly related to justice-centering decarbonization of the U.S. energy system. Dr. Gruber, may we call you Emily? Absolutely. Wonderful. Great to have you. Um, very excited about this. Great and to be here. I'm just coming off a TED Talk, uh, so I feel very special that you came up with Power Underground. <laughs> Absolutely. It's always a good chance to uh, to go underground. Oh, love it. 
<laughs> Joining Almaz, Emily, and I is Dr. Frank Incropera. Dr. Incropera is the Clifford and Evelyn Brosey Professor Emeritus of Mechanical Engineering and the Matthew H. McCloskey Dean Emeritus for the College of Engineering at the University of Notre Dame. He is known for his contributions to the field of heat transfer, and many mechanical engineers such as myself are familiar with his textbooks, textbook on the fundamentals of heat and mass transfer. He's also the author of the book, Climate Change, A Wicked Problem, subtitled Complexity and Uncertainty at the Intersection of Science, Economics, Politics, and Human Behavior. Dr. Incromera, may we call you Frank? Absolutely. Uh, Perfect. It's uh, been many, many years since we had a professor-student relationship, <laughs> so that's gone. You're now a peer, Paul. That I am definitely not a peer. That would be too great of an honor for me. But that does, uh, for context, uh, Dr. Cropera and I were, we went, he was the dean while I went to school at Notre Dame. And uh, he was a mentor for some of my like senior research. What did we do? It was like independent research, Dr. Cropera. Yes. Yep. It was on wind. He's the reason I got into renewable energy out of college. Credit you. Thank you. Fond memories, fond memories for sure. Uh, on Public Power Underground, we talk about the electric utility tri enthusiasm trifecta of electrification, markets, and people. On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching the whole trifecta through the lens of the mid-transition. We'll talk about natural gas distribution system obsolescence, increased reliance on electric utility reliability, and the wickedness of the problem of a just energy transition. As always, Almaz will ask an unscripted question in a segment we call Almaz's Insightful Question of the Week. Then we'll close it out with closing thoughts from Dr. Frank and Cropera. So, or Frank, that uh, now I get to call him apparently. Um, but before we do, let's start with a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Almaz, did you know nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power? Is that a thing you knew? I did not know that. I would have said hydro. Um, I, okay. Well, nuclear is probably in more parts of the country probably than hydro hydro is very river specific I think. yeah I'm, I'm i'm very focused on the northwest in yeah, america you're that. probably right yes nuclear yeah, sounds right love that about you okay in fact nuclear energy provides about 50 percent of the country's carbon-free electricity and energy northwest our friends at energy northwest is a premier provider of carbon-free electricity in the Pacific Northwest. Energy Northwest mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost-effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest clean energy future. To learn more, do you know want to do you want to know how to learn more, Almaz? Yeah, give me the info. I need to know more. Okay. Okay, let's let's learn more. To learn more about Energy Northwest, visit their website at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. Okay, Omaz, why don't you introduce the first topic? All right. Uh, Frank, in your 2016 book on climate change published by Cambridge University Press, you framed the topic of climate change in terms of the wickedness of the problem. Um, a quote, wicked problem being one whose definition is elusive and for which a, a definitive solution may be lacking. 
Um, in your exploration of the term, you clarify that wicked problems are, quote, inherently societal problems that may have a scientific or technical component, but unlike purely scientific or technical problems, societal problems are matters of public policy. And any attempt at a solution will have multiple consequences as its implications ripple across many affected parties, end quote. Um, when reading Dr. Gruberts and Sarah Hastings Simon's co-authored paper on, quote, designing the mid-transition, the abstract discusses the mid-transition in terms that align with your framing of the wickedness of climate change. Um, and quote, uh, decarbonization requires rapid and significant industrial transition of the energy supply at scale. This includes explicit and coordinated plans, not only for zero carbon phase in, but also for fossil carbon phase out. Uh, many aspects of transition will be felt and shaped directly by individuals because of our direct interactions with energy systems. Even rare missteps are likely to have significant and potentially design system design relevant impacts on perception, political support, and implementation. End quote. So that was a, a fairly long quote, sort of linking these these two ideas. Let's let's start by tackling the question of whether the mid transition is a wicked problem, um, and the consequences of failing to coordinate the transition to a decarbonized energy system at scale. Well, the short answer is yes, it is. Uh, let me provide some context. Uh, there was about a 10-year period of trying to wrap my arms around uh, climate change and all of its related issues before that book was written and uh, published. I had to get a feeling for the science, the science behind global warming and the science behind the effects of global warming, namely, namely climate change. So global warming being the cause, climate change being the effect. And I, a lot of time spent trying to understand those issues. And once I understood the issues, and I believe that, yes, this is a serious problem, I started to look at all of the technologies that could be deployed in the way of obtaining a solution to the problem. Some of them uh, were uh, very workable. Others had economic issues associated with them. And I tried to sort through all of these technologies. I then looked at the political, domestic political issues and geopolitical issues globally, and those vary considerably, but they have a lot of uh, input on just how we handle uh, climate change. And then I looked at behavioral issues, uh, uh, cultural issues, how they affected human responses to uh, climate change. What is it that uh, stimulated a lot of denial on uh, the effects of global warming and climate change, and also delved into uh, ethical issues. So all of that led me to believe that this is a multifaceted uh, solution uh, that uh, has uh, multiple effects on multiple constituencies. When I read uh, uh, Dr. Gruber's paper, uh, it simply uh, compounded that complexity made the problem even more wicked, if we can continue to use that term, 
Uh, because it talked about the nature of the transition and uh, how we handle uh, the phase out of uh, technologies that rely on the use of fossil fuels. Keeping in mind that today, globally, 80% of the primary energy used in the energy system comes from fossil fuels. Uh, just take the transportation industry, for example. Uh, it is on the threshold of undergoing the biggest transformation that it has ever experienced. One that's going to have a significant effect on the workforce. If we completely transition to electric vehicles, uh, the simplicity of those vehicles relative to those powered by IC engines will mean a significant reduction in the number of components used in the vehicles, and a significant reduction, a net reduction in the workforce needed to uh, produce those vehicles. So how do we handle that transition? How do we deal with these changes in the workforce? And then there are infrastructure, infrastructure requirements needed to make that transition work, beginning with charging stations. We're well behind now in terms of the charging stations we need in this country. We need fast charging charging stations. We need them to work reliably. Um, we need to develop a means of production of the batteries and vehicles themselves, and also maintaining critical supply chains, particularly the materials required for these batteries. So a number of nations have said that by 2035, uh, there will no longer be IC engine IC engine vehicles sold in those nations in several states in the United States have uh, established 2035 as a timeline. Is that too tight of a timeline? Does it put too much pressure on uh, establishing a, a stream of electric vehicles that are consistent with uh, the energy transition? Uh, these are things that remain problematic. So yeah. I think a lot of the things that Emily uh, talked about uh, are things that uh, add complexity to the problem. Make it wicked. Make it wicked. That's for sure. Uh, and I, I, the, Emily, you just went to or gave a TED talk. Um, and one of the examples you used in the beginning was like the gas pumps, not to spoil the TED talk, but like this gas infrastructure. Um it can, it could, I think this is probably a good entry point to talk about like this really complex system that we've developed um, following on Dr. Incropera's discussion of like this one example of a workforce change and a system change and an infrastructure change that's really quick. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I talk about a lot, I feel like I'm the person haunting this conversation, basically being like there's another half of this that we need to be talking about is yeah. we give a lot of attention justifiably so to all of the stuff that we need to build. But when we think about what it means to hit zero emissions or net zero emissions, which need to be as close to zero as they can be because the, the net is actually very difficult. That actually means closing down a lot of stuff too. And that piece of it is not as popular to talk about politically, but it is something that we need to be extraordinarily careful with. Like we know what happens when industries collapse suddenly. We've actually seen industry collapse suddenly with the coal industry over the last 15 years or so. And this has happened in steel. This has happened in many other industries around the world. 
this is something where what the potentially collapsing industries might do is really remove people's access to very critical infrastructure. So the gas station example that I, I think really resonates with people because it's a familiar one is essentially, yeah, assuming what happens when you have a whole bunch of private industries, essentially, that are making independent decisions, particularly with gas stations where they're often retailers that are mostly convenience stores at some level, but are really making decisions based on their individual profitability and their individual needs at a system level when you are transitioning the transportation system from something that uses those fuels and where there's kind of a consistent demand for them to something where maybe you only have a couple of cars in a neighborhood that need that gas station now. The gas station closes, then one solution obviously is to make sure that the people that were still relying on those vehicles have some other alternative. I think we talk a lot about a really difficult transition just basically being a one-for-one -one swap of ICE vehicles into EVs. That's also not the only thing we could do. Um, this is a lot of where we start thinking about, you know, I, I would argue actually one of probably the biggest transportation transitions that we've had ever is really relying on city structures that require you to be able to drive a car rather than being like super densely clustered and these types of things. That actually happened relatively quickly in human culture history. It's something that we could do again the other direction potentially. Is that something we want to do? Maybe. Um, but in terms of just how fast this happens and how thoughtful we need to be about it, it's not going to happen from a whole bunch of uncoordinated individual decisions. And those uncoordinated individual decisions that we might see people making are likely to leave very specific groups of people unable to access really, really important things. The other thing to, I'll stop talking in just a second, but the other thing that I really think a lot about is the visibility of using fossil fuels in a car relative to a lot of other contexts. Like, you can probably guess just because of where I live. I'm up in northern Indiana, so it gets pretty cold here. You can probably guess driving by my house that I have gas heat, but you don't know that. When I'm driving a gasoline-powered vehicle in 2045 and climate change is a lot worse than it is now, like what's the social response to that? Like, Do Ooh. we see massive ostracization, <laughs> things like this? And those kinds of things go well beyond just like, what's the infrastructure change we need to make? And I think that's where this whole, like, what are we planning for and what are we trying to do? What does it mean if we think we cannot do that is uh, pretty important to talk about. Absolutely. I have a follow-up, but Almaz, did you, do you have any follow-ups before I jump in? I am still formulating it in my head. Go ahead, Paul, you go first. Well, well, one of the reasons I was so excited to get both of you on, because you're both uh, approaching these problems with this, like, I'll frame it as wickedness of like the, the social and economic implications and the diverse constituencies that and stakeholders that could be left behind in this transition. Um, as we kind of described the wicked problem that uh, Dr. Encropera framed his book around, does that feel right to you, Emily, or like the complex socioeconomic circumstances and constituencies about the mid-transition? Yeah, it does. And I think one of the things about wicked problems that's always interesting is like you have to start pulling on some thread somewhere. But I think you know, this is probably the engineering training coming out, but I think we're taught to break problems down into really small pieces sometimes. I think this is one of these times where we actually need to go back up all the way and think about a framing that I use a lot really is where do we want to be in 100 years yes. or where do we want to be in 50 years? And then thinking about what would we actually need to do to get there as opposed to saying, well, incrementally, what can we do this month, this year? That's really important too. But I think we tend to 
with these really big, wicked problems simultaneously need to pull way up and get really detailed at the same time, which is part of what makes them challenging. But yeah, I, I think we are suffering from a little bit of a, a lack of general public discourse, basically, about where we're trying to get. And it, so uh, That's for sure. But, but the issue will always remain one of people not wanting to be or go where we might as a group decide to be the optimum uh, place to be at a certain point in time. Uh, we will be talking about natural gas, and there is a huge uh, constituency for natural gas that will do everything they can to maintain that as a essential primary source of energy. Uh, so we can optimize in our minds what the best way to approach these things are. Uh, but those who have vested interests in maintaining the existing infrastructure and the existing sources of energy. Uh, Emily, you mentioned it in your paper. We have to really get everything right. We have to be very careful <laughs> not to do things that... Uh, elevate the voice of those who would like to proceed more slowly. Uh, so I, I think that's always going to be part of this uh, struggle to move in the right direction over time. Dr. Gerber gave me a great segue. I'm probably not going to take it, though, because I did want to hit on this last point, right? The bullhorn for like the political bullhorn is currently at this, these entities that with a lot of investment in the status quo. And part of, I think, what we're trying to do is make sure the vulnerable communities um, that, that need a just energy transition get the bullhorn too. Like you don't overemphasize stakeholders that want to maintain a current status and that you find ways to elevate constituencies that are vulnerable to this transition. Did I get you right, Dr. Kopera? Does that make sense, Emily? Yeah, it does. Dr. Uh, Dr. But uh, there are a lot of vehicles to get opposing opinions across. Uh, social media, uh, conservative uh, TV. Uh, other people have these pulpits in which they can direct opinion in ways that will preserve legacy energy systems so yeah there is a communication issue we have to have a large bullhorn we have to try to shape public opinion with reality uh, of facts and what will happen if we do this what will happen if we don't do it uh, and somehow counter those other voices out there which are influential more influential today than they they were 15, 20 years ago when I did my first deep dive into this area. Uh, I've given a lot of talks on climate change, and there are always people in the audience that uh, won't accept the science, just deny it. And uh, uh, it's hard to get through to these people. Uh, Emily, I, I have a a question. Um, so we've we've been talking about the the mid transition. I just we probably didn't do a good job um, defining it at the beginning, or or how you perceive the the, the mid transition. Um, but the way I understand it is it's it's at that point where there's 
I guess, just as much um, renewable as there are is fossil fuel um, in the energy system and but not enough of either one for the system to exist without the other. And you're like at that tipping point um, where um, am I characterizing that mid-transition state correctly or do you have yeah, a better way? I think that's it's pretty close to how I think about it. One of the things that I like to think about is really how long the mid-transition is. So yeah, there's that 50-50 point, but I think, um, and Sarah, who is great and uh, up at Calgary is a uh, probably creditable for this mostly, but when we were thinking about trying to actually put numbers to how we define the mid-transition, we'd kind of come to this point of kind of 20% penetration all the way up to 80% penetration by oh, okay. each system. And I think that that's actually a really important point. It's not this kind of single issue. It's probably something that lasts a few decades. And it's really like you're saying, um, the period during which both systems are constraining each other, but neither one is big enough to take over. The way that I really like to think about it is this is basically the hard mode part where you can't actually rely on one system if something goes wrong with the other. This is something we haven't actually really gotten to. And that was, I think, one of the the scary slash interesting things for me whenever I talk about this is we haven't really quite entered the mid-transition for a lot of this stuff. If you take that definition on board, like there are places in the U.S. that have 20% renewable electricity penetration, for example, um, but like with cars, for example, you are nowhere near 20% penetration of EVs. There's not really a constraint on the gasoline system by the EV system. Um, and obviously the dominant system is so big that it doesn't probably create too many um, like direct, direct impacts on the EV system at this point. But like there are, I think, many more difficult days to come. I, one of the illustrations of this potentially is during the big freeze in Texas a few years ago where, yeah, there wasn't anything really available to pick up when there was this massive, massive demand spike during a very, very cold period. It's a little bit of an unusual situation, but things like that where you're kind of relying on one system, in that case, the natural gas system to pick up the slack where you need it, and then it's not there. I think that's going to start to become a lot more common and will probably, again, last decades. Like The better we can do to get through that, the better off we are. And speeding through the mid-transition to some extent is probably helpful just because this is something where I genuinely believe it's going to be harder going through it than it is to be on either end of it. At the same time, climate change is continuing through all of this. And so even what we're trying to adapt to and what we're trying to build for is a little uncertain. And so you have the situation where you're trying to create new operational paradigms for systems that you're trying to get to the point where they can take over entirely, but they have to exist within the market structures, within the geographic structures, within the workforce structures, et cetera, that are left there by the legacy system. And they have to adapt to a harder operational consideration in general, just because of climate change. I think to get back to something we were talking about a minute ago, this is part of why incumbency bias is such an issue. Like people are going to always during this transition period be like, well, it used to work better. Like, what changed? Oh, we started adding all of this decarb stuff. That must be the issue. Like, Yes and no, like it will get better when we have a system that's actually operating in a way that's designed for those systems to succeed, which is not where we are at this point and probably does happen closer to a 50 plus percentage point. But also it will be easier when, you know, it has been easier in the past, basically, because we didn't have this massive, massive climate dynamic that, you know, we're not necessarily moving to another equilibrium that we arrive once we hit zero. This is going to continue to be a dynamic. And we know that the systems that we have are not operating as well as they used to just because we're outside of the design parameters, essentially. So I, I'm curious. Um, so 
if it's like 20 to 80, but that, that, that is decades. It's a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering about the, the, um, like you have these two systems, one, you know, like one of them being a fossil fuel system that the, you know, the, the grid will not be able to function without. So you have to take care of it at the same time that you're tearing it apart. Um, how do you, uh, like, what advice do you have for, uh, I've actually been having a conversation um, in recent uh, days, actually, um, regarding, um, like, I, I, I work with a group of people who have a vision of the future that, and they believe that it's going to be a lot more distributed, a lot more DERs, sharing, you know, you know resources with your neighbor, they have a different view of the of the future than what it is right now. Um, and, and when, when, when you talk about things like transmission, um, like that, that they, they feel like that's, that's even talking about large scale renewables and transmission to support those renewables is simply supporting the status quo. Um, like that we should be thinking um, beyond, beyond even that. Um, and so like, I, how do you, how do you, um, yeah, yeah, it is a wicked problem now when I think about it. Like, how do you how do you have those conversations when when you're you're trying to to um like do right for what's right now when you know that what you're doing right now is not necessarily gonna be good for for the future? Like how, how do you reconcile what's good for today is not good for tomorrow? Yeah, it, and genuinely I'll, this I'll, oh yeah, sorry. I'll interject because this is a framing I've gotten from you and I absolutely love. And it is like plan for the future. You want act like you're actually going to win. Um, actually act like you're actually going to be successful. Go take it from there. Yeah, uh, I think this this question specifically of like how do you manage that period where you do need to be keeping care of all of it actually keeps me up at night because I think that genuinely that is the part that's really really hard to message if you're coming at it purely from kind of a like oh well we're decarbonizing the energy system framing. This is I think also where the communication stuff starts to become important but also to keep adding things. I think a system expansion is really helpful in these circumstances. And I've said this a bunch, but just, I promise I'm going to get back to your question more directly. But I think one of the things that I really think is critical here is to not think about this purely as an energy transition or an industrial systems transition. This is a societal transition. And that means starting from the question of what do people need and how are we going to get that to them? Like I, I genuinely believe like universal healthcare is a major, major climate transition requirement, essentially. Like these are the kinds of things that make transition very difficult. Housing is something that makes transition very difficult because people are worried that they're going to lose the things they need to survive. And so if you kind of start from what do people actually need? This is a system that exists because we're trying to provide good lives and good opportunities for people. And so therefore, okay, what do we need to do? That message of, yep, we are moving away from fossil, but while we're doing that and while we're working on that and here's our vision and we're you know building trust by showing that we're actually acting on this we do need to still invest in gas pipelines so that they don't blow up in neighborhoods like those kinds of things i think are much easier to explain when you've kind of demonstrated where you're trying to get to and that you do have this central view of trying to make life better for people but yeah like the way we're doing it right now which is essentially you know, basically conflating a lot of the system expansion with system maintenance kinds of questions does lead to a lot of distrust, I think, and often justified distrust. Like when you have a gas utility coming through and saying, 
we need to do these things for safety reasons. And by the way, we're going to expand the system by 30% or something along those lines. It's a little hard to read that as, but we're actually trying to decarbonize. I think that those tensions and those realities that, yeah, this is not something that's just like next quarter, we're going to have a little bit of a blip. We're going to have these kinds of blips for decades is, I think, again, where this overall vision and overall central point of like, what are we actually trying to do really becomes extraordinarily, extraordinarily important. The other thing about this that I think is really complicated is that, and I talk about this a lot too, but the fossil industries are high hazard industries. Fundamentally, you actually need people who know what they're doing, working on them. And because of that, you end up in situations pretty quickly where you realize that you need new workers in these industries, even at the same time as we're talking about phasing them out over the course of one person's career, potentially at this point, if we're successful. That is a really, really hard message where it's like, yeah, we actually do probably need more petroleum engineers. We need people who are good at inspecting gas pipelines and good at operating gas pipelines for a while longer. We know the workforces in these industries are aging already, which is in some ways an advantage because you get some natural attrition as the industries get smaller. But we actually do need to be good at training people and keeping these systems up, even at the same time as we have this explicit normative goal of phasing them out. So I think that's also one of the reasons why an explicit focus on the fossil workforce as kind of in addition to a, a focus on climate impacted workers and everyone, frankly, is relevant also. You know, I think uh, there should be some basic principles guiding us through this transition. And for me, a basic principle has always been, at least since I became involved with these extra dimensions of energy, has always been energy security. And I think that should be a fundamental requirement as we proceed through this. And energy security to me means an ample amount of in, uninterruptible energy, ample being whatever it takes to satisfy our needs, at an affordable price. So ample, uninterruptible, affordable. And we've got to keep that in mind as we plan our way through this transition, the mid-transition. Because if any one of those aspects breaks down, we don't have enough energy, um, it's too expensive, it's interrupted too much, uh, there will be a lot of upset people and uh, there'll be finger pointing and uh, whether it's justified or not, efforts made to enhance this transition may receive a good deal of the blame. And I think you addressed this, Emily, in your paper, that uh, that blowback could then affect the whole transition process. So that's a fundamental principle with me. Uh, it nucleated uh, back in 1973 with the first oil embargo. At that point, I became conscious of the impact something like that could have on the economy and people's response to uh, interruption of what had been almost a given uh, to uh, life uh, in industrialized societies. And what I saw over the years is uh, not the demand for petroleum decreasing in this country, but increasing to the point where we were consuming 25% of the world's consumption of petroleum 
and reached a point where we were importing 60% of our consumption. And then I saw that trend developing in natural gas, where we got to the point where we were importing 15, 15% of the natural gas that we, we were consuming. To me, that's very dangerous to maintaining a nation's energy security. And to me, energy security has uh, is a very important component of national security. So one of the things that we have to keep in mind as we move through this is what kind of redundancy do we have in our system to maintain this kind of security? Uh, getting back to the episode in Texas a few winters ago, uh, in some respect, that was a self-inflicted wound committed by the state of Texas through ERCOG, the Energy Reliable Reliability Council of Texas. They essentially isolated themselves from the Eastern Connection and the Western Connection. A lot of the problems that they experienced could have been mitigated by the ability to import electricity from other regions of the country. Uh, apart from certain regions of Texas, they lack that capability. So, I, Amaz, you mentioned you're interacting with people who don't look at trans, transmission as a major part of the solution. I think transmission is critical. Uh, trans, uh, extending uh, transmission lines, extending distribution lines, it's critical to moving forward. Pick up on the security thing a little bit too. I think one of the reframes that I've found helpful for myself, and I work a lot on buildings, is also thinking about security of services because the energy security frame is an important one. And also sometimes I think allows us to get a little far away from some of the creative solutions here. So like, for example, keeping people warm and mobile, there's ways to do that that are very much focused on ensuring that every individual building always has interruptible access to some fuel. And there's also ways to do this that involve you know, more efficient housing or emergency services that actually allow you to get to a centrally heated place, like things like this. It's not necessarily always going to be the solution, but I think especially as we deal with some of these bigger challenges, like when, you're, when your weather exceeds the size of your grid, essentially, which is I think what a lot of the ERCOT folks talk about mm -hmm. with that event, it's there are other things that we can do other than having absolute reliability from the energy system sometimes that probably need to be on the table because there's just so many things that need to change as we go forward. And I think sometimes it gets a little bit lost in the public discussion of how much bigger of a grid we're talking about going to. When we talk about electrifying everything and really trying to move away from fossil by using electricity instead, like a lot of the deep decarb studies out there kind of show that we'd be going from roughly a terawatt of installed capacity to three to seven terawatts, depending on how you feel about hydrogen and CDR. Like it's a lot of capacity. And so it's a lot of the time, not so much a conversation about, well, do we need to rebuild transmission or extend it a little bit? It's like, we're making this grid maybe three to seven times bigger than it is right now. And so we're going to also, in addition to all of those things to get redundancy, probably need to be a little bit creative in the really hard situations. Yeah. But, but in terms of electricity consumption, uh, we're at what, 4,000 terawatt hours a year in the US, I think to get to uh, net zero by 2050, that's probably going to have to triple and need to think about uh, 
10, 11, 12 uh, terawatt hours, 1,000 terawatt hours. Uh, uh, that's a major bump. It is a major bump. And I think one of the, one of the things we all need to uh, really love about the electrification of our end uses is it is also a energy efficiency play because the consumption you need um, for like direct end use of fossil consumptions for heat process and stuff like that is just much more efficient when done with electricity. Uh, electric vehicles is one example where we consume a, like probably 50% more energy by burning fossil gas than uh, if we did it with electrification. So these are electrification is energy efficiency and um, our end use energy should be reduced in a successful electrification of a lot of these processes. Paul, I'm really glad you said that because I sometimes forget to <laughs> to bring that up. It's true. It's it's actually kind of amazing what the primary energy consumption changes look like when you see full electrification. And yet it also means a massive expansion of the electricity system itself. Yep. It's like those Both two things hands. at once are very interesting to think about. But yeah, absolutely. Like the, the high efficiency stuff and what that means for grid management potentially is it's a different paradigm than we've had before, which is an exciting design space. And anything you can do to replace thermodynamic cycles get you away from this limitations imposed by the second law of thermodynamics. But uh, just a uh, slight criticism, Paul. Uh, electric Please. resistance heating is a terrible way to heat. Absolutely. But we yeah, get doing we heat pumps in Cropair. We're doing heat pumps. Heat pumps yeah, are magic in Cropair. That's a thermodynamic cycle now. And you have thermodynamic limitations. And you for have sure. the coefficients this of time I'm just pumping very it. dependent. I'm, very, I'm just pumping heat. I'm pumping heat. What? I'm just pumping heat. I'm not creating heat anymore, thankfully. I'm just pumping it. Yeah, but Keep you're using a thermodynamic cycle to do it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I respect, okay. respect, respect, Dr. Cropera. Absolutely. But they are more efficient. They're more efficient than a natural gas furnace. They use less uh, less BTUs of energy to heat similar space. They're magic. Heat pumps are magic. Come on, Dr. Copera. I know there's no magic. I know there's no magic. I just also know heat pumps are more efficient. Yeah, well, My window I, I, heat pump is getting here. I had spot. a heat pump once. <laughs> well, They're better now, I, Dr. Copera. I don't buy the fact that the, the uh, coefficient of performance has improved that much. Really has, Dr. Copera. Uh, refrigerants that are used aren't much better. And I realize the limitations associated with condensation and evaporation, heat transfer, and heat transfer from air, which is a very poor heat transfer of fluid. So, uh, the technology on heat pumps has not improved that much. And in certain regions of the cost this country, has come down. What? But the cost has come down. So it's, so it's a better dollar value. The cost has come down, but uh, the thermodynamic performance hasn't gone up that much. And above uh, maybe 35 degrees north lat latitude, as you move from the uh, plain states into the Midwest and the New England states, uh it's an expensive proposition in terms of uh cost to run them relative to natural gas we got I, i'm gonna i'm gonna keep pumping i'm just gonna keep selling heat pumps on here like they they there's they came out with a reem came out with a heat pump i just saw it uh that goes is efficient down to negative 35 degrees fahrenheit um, they just uh, they just had it pass a bunch of tests. I'm sorry. I'll send you the link, Doctor and Grubert. Uh, please. They're do. doing great yeah. things on heat pumps, aren't they, Doctor Grubert? 
Absolutely. Yeah. My, my gradient should be here in about two weeks, hopefully in time for summer. So pretty excited about that. But yeah, it, it is interesting. Like, I think this kind of gets back to our overall point, though, of you know, we are kind of going all in on some technologies and we need to be really careful that they're ready. And heat pumps are a lot more ready than they used to be, certainly. But I think a lot of us remember like the fluorescent light bulb CFL issue for a while that eventually, you know, we solved it basically by going straight to LEDs. But people were really anti-fluorescence for a long time, both because of the really bad rollout of fluorescence initially in the 80s or so, and also because of like the mercury issues and stuff more recently. It's like, there are things that are sometimes worth waiting on, but I'm I'm with Paul on this one. I don't think it's worth waiting on heat pumps at this point. Magic. magic where you live. Is that right? I think they work in North Dakota now. It goes down to negative 35 Fahrenheit, Dr. Gopera. They work everywhere in the U.S. now. What is it like? Forty percent of new heater sales in Norway are heat pumps, something like that. It might be higher. Yeah, Norway, than that. I would not. Do you have a heat pump? Uh, you, district heating out here. Oh, nice. um, oh, that's even better. Oh, let's do district <laughs> heating everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Notre Dame has district heating, don't you? Uh, they're investing very heavily, and it's uh, they're using well water as a heat sink and a heat source which is the way to go with heat pumps, but it's much more expensive. <laughs> uh, I saw them drilling the geothermal in. wells when I was on campus this morning. Pretty exciting. That's, awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, Send us a picture. By the stadium, major construction. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, we're already folks, halfway through our time and we're on our first topic. Take Let's 30 talk. years to pay that back. Pay back society forever, Dr. Gopara. Look at the societal benefits. We got anyway. $20 billion. We can take the hit. <laughs> Woo. Notre Dame can afford it. That's right. Okay, I want to talk about natural gas obsolescence, uh, the distribution system obsolescence. So we're going to transition to the next topic in post. I'll insert a nice little typewriter. Sounds great. Um, And I'm going to probably skip a little bit of my intro. I was going to read a bunch of your paper, Dr. Uh, Gruber, because I find your paper on the mid-transition, it should be required reading for any planners during this time. Not only power planners, but like city planners, county planners. Anybody hoping to influence policies on codes and standards? Because I think it's it's helpful to make sure we're thinking about the right elements of the mid-transition. I think it does a great job of that. But I really want to focus on like this one aspect of the energy transition um, because um, access to like high-quality energy infrastructure in the that we get currently through the natural gas distribution systems. Um, may be part of this like complication of the mid-transition. So a lot of our customers and constituencies at electric utilities use natural gas for heating. And while we just talked about heat pumps, which are wonderful technologies, they got a lot of federal support through the Inflation Reduction Act to help make that more affordable for people. Um, and it's a great way for people to use to, to convert to electric heat and get electric heat. It's still the case that the most vulnerable populations don't have access to the money to invest in and change out this heat source from a natural gas system to heat pumps, even if it is to their economic advantage um, by getting lower cost. So there's this obvious and unjust risk of leaving the most vulnerable among us to experience the disruption to natural gas distribution systems as captive customers. people that use it not only for heat, but also for cooking. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on like how do we do this mid-transition, specifically around the natural gas distribution systems? I think um, it doesn't leave the most vulnerable exposed. Go ahead. 
Natural gas distribution, I think, is one of the hardest problems here in a lot of ways, just because of the regulatory structures we have set up, the way that we handle, you know, acceptable monopolies and things like that, like especially for utilities that are split so that it's not the same utility handling electric and gas. I think this is a really, really challenging problem because you're essentially saying, you know, this entire utility kind of needs to go away if we're going to hit yeah. a lot of these targets because people talk about alternative things in the gas distribution system sometimes like rng i have a lot of feelings about rng but it's it's a small volume thing that still has a pretty high methane footprint it's not really a good solution if you're talking about bulk replacement of natural gas similarly hydrogen is not actually a drop-in fuel it's not going to be able to do a lot of the kinds of things that people want it to do within a building for example and that's it's really expensive to do that even if it were, but there's a lot of reasons why just a gas to gas swap probably doesn't make sense. And so when we start thinking about distribution systems, like you say, it's essentially as people electrify, the remaining infrastructure becomes more important, more expensive per unit of person. Yeah, This is, I think, actually one of the most interesting regulatory market, uh, you know, legal setup problems that we actually have, because the fundamental problem here is essentially that we privatize the purchase of appliances, but we socialize the cost of the utility system. And so basically the poorest that don't have access to capital for new appliances are therefore paying a bunch of money to maintain the system that they have to continue to use. There are different ways we could organize our systems that would make that different. Like, right, if if we had a system that really socialized the cost of heaters for homes or something like that, the way that we do for natural gas pipelines, this conversation would look very different. My feeling about whether that's going to happen in the near-term future is pretty pessimistic, but it's fundamentally not so much an issue with electrification. It's an issue with the way that we've decided who bears what costs, but it is a very, very real issue. And it's something that we've seen a lot with people talking about, you know, utility death spirals. I know it's kind of a, a touchy subject sometimes because it kind We're of- electric utility kind of enthusiasts, right? you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. It's awkward to talk about it on here, but probably yeah. a real thing. <laughs> Right. And I think realer in natural gas where there's not an obvious yeah. way to pick it back up, because with the when people talk about it in electricity, it's like, oh, well, people are going to grid defect. There's some backstop to that with natural gas. There might not be like if we're really talking about not using gas in homes anymore, there's not something that is going to pick up that system. And so really thinking about how you prune systems, how you reallocate those costs in ways that don't really discourage people from moving to electricity faster. Like some of the proposals that say that if you want to move to a heat pump, you have to pay the giant departure fee or something like that. It's not necessarily going to help us get to our, our deep decarbonization goals faster. But nonetheless, there is some need to socialize the whole transition as opposed to only socializing the cost of maintaining the incumbent system and completely privatizing the cost of moving away from it. The RA helps with that a little bit, but even the incentives in there are not huge, frankly, for an individual yeah. house. And so thinking about how that works is tricky. Could you say that again? You said socialize the cost of of which of of the new system and privatize the yeah. Can you say that again? Just that, like socializing the cost of the transition broadly. I think okay. a way that we could think about this. But yeah, right now okay. it's the transition is private, and the staying with the system that we already have is public in a lot of ways. I I yep. Totally Jump in, Doctor Incropera. Where you at, man? Where we? Yeah, I've already, well, I've already gone on a heat pump rant, and you're already frustrated yeah, with me. I, Take, I'm still on my going. energy security. Uh, uh, yeah, I read an article uh, two years ago by uh, written 
co-authored by a journalist uh, who writes on energy issues quite a bit. It was an op-ed piece, and the other co-author was uh, with a, a consulting company that deals with energy policy. And the article was entitled, When Will Electric Companies Finally Quit Natural Gas? And uh, it really piqued my interest uh, at the time. Uh, and their argument was, and it was based upon a study done at UC Berkeley, that 90% uh, uh, of the electricity needs in this country uh, could be covered by non-carbon sources of electricity without building another natural gas-fired power plant in the country. Uh, and I began to wonder, uh, well, as we decommission coal-fired power plants, uh, decommission nuclear power plants, our ability to generate baseload power goes down, uh, what's going to pick up the slack? Uh, NGC, natural gas combined cycle power plants, uh, uh, are we going to uh, have a reduced need for those plants in the future? How about combustion turbines for peak power requirements? And then reading Emily's paper about the energy transition and how careful we have to be not to too seriously disrupt existing systems. I've come to the conclusion that uh, we need to be very careful how we manage uh, natural gas, particularly from the standpoint of using it to produce electricity. Uh, I think uh, it's going to be with us for decades to come and we've got to manage it carefully. It's a really, it will become, and maybe it is already a little bit like a very fragile system now, the natural gas system, because of the reduced incentive to invest in like trans, like natural gas pipeline transmission infrastructure and in the risk a lot of natural gas companies and distribution utilities have for investing and emily you talked about this a little bit earlier like the like really tricky narrative around i need to and i need to maintain um and my maintenance maybe causes me to expand and that skepticism around investing maintaining a distribution system that is really important for the most vulnerable among us it's I think this is something that is probably one of my favorite critiques of a lot of modeling, actually, is this kind of presumption that those systems remain really robust deep into the future. And it comes up in distro and like home use pretty quickly because I think people see that one shifting a lot faster than some of the bigger industrial users and the power plant users. But one of the reasons why natural gas is so interesting as an energy resource is it's basically the only one that we use for three very, very different things at roughly even sizes. So like coal and most renewables are basically electricity. Oil is basically transportation. Gas is industry, heating, and power at about a third each. It's not exactly right, but roughly. And so when we think about peeling off individual pieces of that, the implications for the 200,000 miles of pipelines that the United States has and who's maintaining them, which ones do actually need to stick around, who has an actual responsibility to do this, like a lot of that stuff is not utility managed. And I think the paradigm for people that are coming to the energy system really thinking about renewables where the fuel is integrated with the conversion equipment 
starts to be a little bit tricky when you start to think about natural gas, because there's, a again, to come back to the critique that I have, a lot of the time people assume that there will be natural gas available in small quantities during emergency situations. That's probably not true, because that requires that you have a production system that's all private companies that don't have an obligation to necessarily produce. It requires that you have your entire midstream infrastructure, so all of the pipelines, and that they're pressurized sufficiently to get the gas to where you need to get it. The gas doesn't tra travel at the speed of light the way that electricity does. And so, you know, you're talking a few days for gas to get from one side of the country to the other. If you have a big emergency and a much, much smaller gas system, there's no real guarantee that it's going to be there. And so when I see a lot of these models that basically say, yep, gas is going to be around for a really long time, but it's going to be 2% capacity factors in combustion turbines that are evenly distributed through the population centers of the United States, kind of like, where's that gas coming from and how expensive is it? And so, Frank, I think to your point, like really trying to delve into the technical questions there of, you know, it would be nice to be able to have a resource that was on hand that you could kind of pull out when you need it. Yes, but the one that we are used to using for that is probably not actually as available and as stable as we think it is. And we've already seen that even in a system where it's a pretty robust market for it. So yeah, thinking about how do you actually solve those last two or 3% is absolutely an issue, but also to a point that I think you made earlier, not a reason to slow down when we're only at 15, 20% at this point. We've got a ways to go before this is a problem. Yeah, uh, um, but... Yeah, I don't know what you were implying when you indicated that the natural gas system in terms of power generation is not as stable as it could be. It provides about uh, twice the amount of electricity as coal-fired generation, twice the amount as nuclear power, twice the amount as renewable energy. Yeah, but during emergency periods, we've seen those plants go down. Like, I think this is the thing that also becomes important. Like, during normal operations, absolutely. But during emergency situations, we've seen a lot of issues with that infrastructure. Because if you get a pipeline that's not able to run during a hurricane or during a big fire or something like that, it's actually not as much like the way that we think about renewables, where the thing is in the sun and it's going to go, like you actually do need to be able to get that gas to the plant. And we've seen that fail during emergency circumstances, which are the ones where we would expect to need these small amounts of gas in the future. I think that's the other thing that comes up a lot when we think about where this fits into a longer term system is we're not calling on gas to be there for the easy part. We're calling on gas to be there for the absolutely most difficult parts of the system, which relies on multiple systems all functioning together, that we have less experience operating, fewer people interested in you know spending their lives working in these industries, these kind of things. So our competency will probably get smaller as it gets harder as well. It's almost like our use case for this this vast and interconnected system is shrinking down to your point, Emily, where we're in the models, we're relying on it for like 2% of the hours um, and we think it'll be there. So that use case is very different than today. So we have to make sure that our planning around this complicated infrastructure matches that use case and the business plan matches that use case um, in this transition. Of course, My the same argument. Right? Same argument could be made about electricity uh, in extreme weather events. What happens when the distribution lines go uh, down? Absolutely. Uh, and honestly, this is one and, of the reasons uh, why I think we making sure that we can about, deal with power outages. We talked about cybersecurity and uh, how vulnerable that system could be if the proper precautions aren't taken. So I think vulnerability of the energy system applies across the board. Yeah. Uh, 
No, and genuinely, I think this is one of the reasons why we need to focus on building resilience. And like, I think that we do need to prepare for a system where five nines reliability is not really something we can expect. And that's and why redundancy is important. Redundancy, but also making sure that if the power goes out for three days and you're in your house, it's going to be a safe temperature. We know how to build buildings that way. And it's I think a more important part of this energy system going forward relative to the supply side than we give it credit for. Yeah. Well, this is a great transition to our last topic because we're going right into reliability and especially in the electric sector. So Almaz, we're going to hit the typewriter and post and take it away. <laughs> our podcast is for electric utility enthusiasts. So we're invested in high reliability low cost and high power quality service. In Dr. Rupert's paper on the mid-transition, she highlights the codependence of systems during the mid-transition. Quote, during the mid-transition, neither zero carbon nor carbon emitting infrastructure can fully support all energy services on its own. And the overall system is not optimized for either infrastructure's socio-technical uh, particularities. Risk of maladaptations, overlooked opportunities for synergies, and uncoordinated decision-making are high during the mid-transition, particularly as infrastructures encounter simultaneous climate, technology, and societal dynamics that are not well characterized by past experience, end quote. Uh, Dr. Nkropera, you have a whole section of your book dedicated to the ethics of climate change. Um, if we're planning for success and planning to electrify large swaths of our economy, including major industrial processes and vulnerable customers, home heating and cooking, can you speak to the moral imperative for electric utilities to provide high quality, low cost and highly reliable electric service and the need to avoid uh, maladaptations in an energy system that'll have no historic uh, precedent. That uh, chapter of the book was the most difficult one for me to write. Uh, and, and maybe I need to explain uh, what those ethical issues are uh, in the context of climate change. There were two issues, one that encompasses space or geography and the other that is uh, time-related. Uh, the uh, space and geography issue relates to the fact that uh, most of the uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere were produced by uh, wealthy, industrialized nations, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, who derived significant economic benefits from using the fossil fuels that created those emissions, and in the process created an enormous amount of wealth. Uh, these same nations are probably the least vulnerable to the effects of climate change because they have the resources to adapt to those effects. Those nations, primarily in the lower hemisphere, southern hemisphere, who contributed far less to the greenhouse gases that we have in the atmosphere, are the ones who will be most vulnerable to the extreme weather events and other consequences of climate change. So there is a moral imperative, if you will, for the wealthier 
industrialized nations who've derived the major benefits from the use of fossil fuels to number one, help the less developed nations adapt to climate change, and number two, to help them develop their economies by assisting them with the implementation of carbon-free energy sources. Economies depend upon energy, and we'd like to help these uh, nations achieve uh, healthy economies. To what extent can we assist them in developing non-carbon sources of energy? The other ethical issue is a generational ethics. Uh, previous generations have contributed to what we have in the way of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, and certainly my generation has done a great deal to contribute to these concentrations. And yet it's future generations that are going to bear the biggest impact of climate change due to these greenhouse gases. So uh, what's the moral imperative there? The moral imperative is to get to net zero emissions as soon as possible. But we've been talking over the last hour about all of the other dimensions associated with getting there, including energy security. So does that, uh, how does that relate to nat uh, net uh, or mid-transition issues and the cost of electrifying energy for consumers at large, uh, we're going to have to simply help those uh, with uh, incomes that are insufficient to obtain the infrastructure required for electrification. And particularly in this country where economic inequality is the largest among OECD nations around the world, uh, we're going to have to do more. Electric utilities are going to have to do more. Local and state governments and the federal government, government is going to have to do more to assist these people in the transition because a very large number, not just those at the lower end of the income spectrum, but all the way up to the middle class are going to need assistance in, in paying for this transition. And it's going to have to come out of the pockets of those who can afford to pay for the infrastructure and the energy costs. They're going to have to pay a little more to help those who can't. I I am so glad you said. So I'm I am. We're going to have to have another talk offline. I, I've just come to that conclusion as we've been talking all this time. Um, so I'm currently working on a, a public goods framework for um, utility cost recovery. And part of the, one of the like the reasons I asked that first question to you, Emily, when I was talking about how I, I'm speaking with some of my colleagues and they're saying, well, this is you're just holding on to the status quo. Um, it, it was in the context of this rate structure that the, that I'm proposing where we consider you know, which parts of this transition um are are truly public goods and we don't collect those through rates we have to somehow uh, figure out another mechanism than, than just using our typical volumetric rates um to to, to pay for that trend transition um so i i'm i'm curious to hear what your uh yeah yeah what your thoughts are uh they hear you elaborate more on 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 how how we can actually go about doing that making sure that 
that those costs are um, justly allocated in society. Um, that might be another another conversation, but uh, I, I I am interested in in what your thoughts are on that. I'm, I'm lucky to we we brought you all together, and uh, y'all are brilliant. It'll be a great conversation. I, I did want to get a little bit of your thoughts on this topic, Emily. Uh, you you framed it earlier in the podcast about like resilience and and not just energy security, but like personal security. I well, I forget the term you used earlier, but can you talk a little bit about? I thought of this from electric utility and increased reliability, low low cost, but you've kind of expanded this view to think about resiliency of the serving the needs. Can you help me reframe a little bit? Yeah. And I, I don't want to imply that reliability in the electricity sector isn't important. I think as oh, yeah. we're talking about right now, it's more important as we electrify more things. The scary part of it is that it's also harder to maintain reliability given the conditions that we're moving toward, at least for a while. And you know, maybe yeah. we will get better at managing that kind of stuff, but at least while we're still learning how to manage these systems, especially while they themselves are massively, massively transitioning, I think we need to acknowledge that there is a risk that we're going to have reliability problems in ways that we can actually plan around. And so the goal, obviously, is not to have the power go out, but I think the more that we think about the kinds of additional interventions that we can make that make power outages less harmful. Um, that's actually a really helpful thing to do. And this is partially where I think like really, really getting down to what are emergency management plans? What is it about our building codes that actually make sure that we can ride out a few hours of a power outage, maybe a couple of days of a power outage at safe temperatures? Like These are the kinds of things that we can do in parallel with trying to keep the system as reliable as it can and really kind of comes back to that point about this is about the service. At some level, I don't care if the electricity is you know, here or there coming from whatever, but I do care about the service that I'm receiving. And the, we have a lot more design options if we really focus on what it is that we're trying to achieve. I think particularly because there's so many different modalities of failure that we already have to deal with. I mean, you guys work with this stuff all the time. Like a distribution line outage is a very different thing than a fuel supply outage. And yes, those, it is. Right? Like, and you're always going to have some problems somewhere in the system. And so if you can be pretty confident that most people can kind of manage through at least, you know, one in a year, one in 10 year kind of event, or that you have a really, really robust system in place to make sure that people are able to be moved to somewhere if they need to be like those kinds of things that we're not that good at right now, but we could theoretically be good at if we really thought about that as kind of an inherent part of what it means to be doing this energy transition, I think would be a useful reframe. And again, to kind of bring back the, the this is an everything transition as opposed to just this is an energy transition, it's not just on the electric utilities. It's also on public services. It's on emergency responders, like all these kinds of things. We need ways to address problems that we can see coming. I think that's maybe my other like big headline message about this mid-transition stuff. Most of these problems are predictable. I'm sure there will be a lot of other problems that pop up that we will have to deal with, but like it is predictable that we will have natural gas price spikes as we get patchier demand. It is predictable that the power will be harder to keep on in really, really severe weather conditions when we're managing a lot of different kinds of systems that are working together. It's predictable we're going to have workforce issues. That's really helpful because it means that we can plan for them, but it's also really scary because I think we aren't. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, we should prepare for the things that are predictable because we're going to get a lot of unpredictable things that happen to us. And uh, if we haven't even planned for the predictable ones, people are going to be really skeptical about our ability to make it through. It gets back to the original point about it being a wicked problem. And if we aren't trustworthy in our actions, um, then people, it'll degrade our ability to be successful. But we should get to Almaz's insightful question of the week. If you all are ready, you ready, Almaz? All right. I think let's... first, I think first, I got to go kick it to a sponsorship because this okay. podcast has sponsors. So we'll do that real quick. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. Up next is our TL, TIL segment. I'm calling Almaz's insightful question of the week because she's been asking guests what she has called, quote, unfair questions, but really are just incredibly insightful if unfiltered and unscripted. Take it away, Almaz. Okay. Oh, man, it was a tough choice between two, but I'm going to go with the second one. Um, so you, you, I think I've heard you both mention um, how the best way to go through this transition is to think about where do we want to be in 50 years, 100 years, and then figure out the plan to, to, to actually get there. So I'm going to go back and restate again that the positions of some of my colleagues that I, that I work with in the grid architecture space, um, who uh, remind me constantly, even in, in my own work, that uh, I have to consider what the future state of the grid is going to, to look like. And I'm often accused of assuming that um, our our centralized, you know, big power stations with transmission bringing that power to the the load centers is 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 going to continue moving forward. And I've been challenged on that. Um, and so I'm I'm going to put that challenge to you now and and ask you. Um, how do you see the future um, of the grid being um, in 50, 100 years? Will we continue to have these centralized power plants and, and, and massive transmission lines? We're talking about the, the grid. I've heard you mention this, like being three to seven times larger, right? Is it going to be in this status quo or will that grid look different, be a lot more decentralized um, with less uh, reliance on, uh, on, on these centralized power plants? So, that that's the question. What do you see as that future? Um, do you think it matters? You know whether we have a, a decentralized or a centralized future, and if so, um, are, what do we need to be doing to plan to get there? Or, or, or clearly, we're not doing all the planning we need to. But what else should we be doing to plan um, if there's a difference between whether it's going to be a decentralized versus centralized future? I'd like to take a shot at that. Uh, all right. First of all, you got to do like it in two say- minutes. You got to do it in two minutes or less, Dr. Gropera. Oh, well, that's going to be tough. Uh, but uh, I have a lot of respect for the 20th century grid that we've had. Uh, a lot of dispatchable electricity resources. Uh, the flow of electricity one way from the generator 
to the user. 21st century grid is going to have to be very different. Uh, we're going to have a lot of uh, intermittent forms of energy to deal with. We'll have to provide uh, energy storage, just help balance the grid. And in addition to centralized generation, we're going to have millions of independent customer-owned sources of energy generation and storage as well as billions of very smart devices that use energy and provide opportunities for demand control. So in the 21st century, we have to move to something like an autonomous energy grid that has both centralized generation and transmission, as well as decentralized generation and storage and consumption but a system that facilitates demand control. Uh, so I see a major digitalization of the energy grid occurring. And I think a lot of the investments in the grid in the future are going to be directed towards uh, digitizing it. Uh, so not, think, not centralized, not decentralized. We're digitizing and autonomizing. Everything. Everything's going to be coordinated. That's right. And okay. uh we're going to have millions of sensors out there. We're going to have uh, modern control theories uh, uh, using input from those sensors. We're going to have high-speed com communications. We're going to have wideband uh, wideband communications, high-speed computing. All of this integrated to make the system work as seamlessly and as efficiently as possible. I think that's the future. Okay. It's a beautiful so vision. Not either or, it's both. Okay. What about you, Dr. Gruber? Yeah, I'm going to have to agree on the both. I, I really don't see how we can get to that much capacity without both centralized and distributed sources. I think where my like slightly haunting uh, version of this answer comes from is... I do think that we're going to have to grapple with the point that because it's both, we are going to get some of the benefits that people want from either of the system, but we're also actually going to have to take some of the downsides of there being both there. And what I mean by that is basically, I think a lot of proponents of distributed energy systems are trying to think about how do we get our way out of having to have these very, very large transmission systems that are disruptive to land use and things like that. That's true. And like, there are a lot of things I think we're going to have to do that we would rather not because we've gotten ourselves into a bit of a, a situation with this climate stuff and a bunch of other issues. But I don't think that we're necessarily going to be able to use distributed resources to get rid of some of the problems with the centralized system. And so having to add on a bunch of the distributed kinds of infrastructures that we're not as used to, I think is a something that we do need to prepare for. And there's a lot of advantages to that, even if you don't get away from the centralized system. At the same time, the centralized system, I think, will look different. Just we're talking about moving to resources that are a lot less energy dense or space dense specifically. Mm -hmm. And so having the centralized systems be fundamentally bigger physically, but smaller from like a grid injection perspective, I think does pose some kind of interesting reformulations of what it means to have a centralized grid. So yeah, agree that it's both, but... Oh mostly because we just need a lot more capacity than is going to be easy to do without having both of them. It's going to take a major investment in transmission infrastructure to get uh, renewable energy created in sparsely populated areas. I'm thinking of wind and solar 
getting that electricity to uh, areas uh, with dense populations and have uh, limited uh, resources to supply uh, solar and wind to those areas. So I think investments in the transmission system, high voltage DC transmission systems to minimize losses is going to be an essential component of moving forward. Yeah, we got to figure out underground DC. Ooh. That sounds nice. That sounds nice, doesn't it? We can do some underground DC. Mm, that looks. I there was a whole episode of the and the Energy Gang. I think it was the Energy Gang about it. Maybe not. Uh, before we turn it over to Dr. Incropera to clo- give his closing thoughts, I did want to say thank you to everyone for for being here today. Wonderful job by our co-stars, professors Emily and Frank. Uh, do you feel valued and appreciated, Professor Grubert? Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. That's wonderful to have you. Dr. Incropera, do you feel valued, appreciated, seen, and heard? <laughs> Always, Paul. Thank you. Great. And Almaz, do you feel the sense of belonging in uh, on this podcast that I hope to endear? Absolutely. Great. Well, that's all we're covering this week. I'm going to hand it over to you, Dr. Incropera. I couldn't get to there to call on you, Frank. Quite frankly, I just couldn't get there. I'm so sorry. Uh, I've been, I was your, I was your student. Um, and I couldn't get there. So, but take it away with your closing thoughts. Okay, well, I'll keep it uh, simple. Uh, a segue uh, from our most recent discussion. I think transmission will be vital to the future in going to this autonomous energy grid that integrates uh, distributed generation and storage microgrids with the larger grid. I think that's going to be essential in digitizing that grid. So that these decisions on how to balance it all uh, uh, can be worked out as optimally as possible. Storage is going to be a vital issue. Uh, It is a vital issue now. I think we're getting to the point where we can handle things like the duct curve. But my concern is for long duration energy storage and how do we get there? Uh, I think pump. Pumped uh, hydropower is a good solution, but that's geographically limited. Um, I hope that there'll be innovation in the battery storage uh, area, and this is a hope that will allow us to implement with batteries long-duration energy storage. I would keep uh, an eye on the uh, natural gas uh, distribution system and try to maintain that as healthy as possible, as long as possible. I would keep uh, natural gas power production in the pipeline through natural gas combined cycle plants and uh, and combustion turbines for peak power. And then a last thought that I would interject is that uh, We should certainly do everything we can to promote uh, energy efficiency. But I think we have to think more about energy conservation. Uh, And I I distinguish between the two. Energy efficiency is essentially uh, doing the same with less or doing more with less. Energy conservation is simply doing less. I think we have to really develop a strong sense of conserving energy in this country. Do we have to uh, keep the thermostats as high as we do in the wintertime? Do we need to keep them as low as we do in the summertime? 
Do we need to supersize our vehicles? Do we need to supersize our homes? Let's really think about what we really need for a decent quality of life. And I think if we think this thing through, we're going to find that we need less energy. And the more we can do to bring down demand by conserving that energy, the easier this transition is going to be. So, Paul, that's my final comment. We started in hard times to bring us all in. Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed to our own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. Today's episode was written and produced by Paul Dockery and Almaz Nagesh, and it's edited and published by the stellar team of Pioneer Utility Resources with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delzer. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. <laughs>